Well, good morning, everybody. That was pathetic. <laughs> Let's try again. Borada. That's more like it. It is really an honour for Sally and me to be back again in Wales. And looking out over the audience, I see many old friends growing younger gracefully. And I'm looking forward very much to interacting with people that, as you've just heard from Phil, I knew long ago. Now, I see you are sitting comfortably. Well, let me tell you, so am I. And that's very biblical, in case you didn't know it. In the days of Scripture, Jewish rabbis and the Lord himself sat to teach. And I wish I'd learned to do that many years ago, because as you get older, it becomes positively beneficial. I actually saw it first practiced in a university in Siberia, where the mathematics seminars were always given by a seated professor. The only problem was that as you spoke, and I did it many times, the audience, people would come up individually with little bits of paper and they would put them right there. And they'd bow and they'd go and sit down. You were still speaking. And the longer you spoke, the bigger the pile of questions grew. And I think it would be a very good way of monitoring the length of time that certain speakers take in their perorations, that they knew they had to answer all the questions, and you had to answer all the questions. Now, I'm going to try and build in some time for questions. So please, while I'm speaking, write down your questions. If you wait to the end of a talk... You could usually not think of the question you really wanted to ask. So it's much better to be thinking about questions as I'm speaking. So we'll see how it goes. We have two sessions to cope with a huge story. And I'm going to make a virtue out of necessity, you see. Because, as you saw the advert, I've written a book. So if I don't say enough to satisfy you... You can get the book if you want more punishment. <laughs> Otherwise, well, I leave it entirely up to you. But the story of Joseph is utterly remarkable in all the annals of history and literature. If you think about it, the story of creation occupies a single chapter. The story of Joseph, at least 15 our senses of proportion are clearly not the same as God's sense of proportion. And we're going to start by reading a little bit of the way in which this story begins from Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now that's a fascinating little phrase because it gives this book immediate authenticity if you know what you're looking at. Because the phrase, these are the generations of, is a phrase that occurs repeatedly in the book of Genesis and gives it its literary structure. 
is significant because, of course, ancient writing was done at this stage on clay tablets. And libraries were not the same as Brentirian libraries. Library is today. They were full of tablets. And this was a method of beginning a tablet. These are the generations off. So you can imagine the book of Genesis in some vast room. And there would be these tablets, each beginning with this phrase or colophon, as it is called. And what that tells us is this is authentic from that time because tablets have been discovered, not of biblical material, but of contemporary material, which have exactly the same phrase on them. It's important that we stress at the beginning, we are dealing with story, but it's historical story. There is so much pressure today, as Glenn has hinted, that what we have in Scripture is nonsense, fairy tales. And as we who are convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, it's very important, especially in days of mass biblical ignorance, it's the only way to describe it, to be prepared to emphasize to people that this is real stuff from past history. We're going to be talking about ancient Israel, ancient Palestine, and ancient Egypt. And we're going to talk about events that actually happened and made their mark on the history of the world. So we begin then with this passage. And you notice the abruptness of the way it starts. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph being 17 years old. So it's the generations of Jacob, and then it starts with Joseph. The end of the story, we're going to cheat by looking at the end first. The end of the story is the death of Joseph. That's the very end. But just before the end, Jacob dies. So we're by no means finished with Jacob. This final part of Genesis is the story of Jacob still and his family, in particular Joseph, but not only about Joseph. So it's a very complicated story about a very difficult family situation. So let's just read a few lines now. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And there are some Hebrew experts that suggest that that is a little dig. He was pasturing what? The sheep, but his brothers too. But you can think about what that might mean. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more Then all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed going to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And it goes on to tell how he dreamed a second dream that simply confirmed the first one. But it provoked his father to say to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This final part of Genesis breaks very new ground. Up until now, we have seen that in the second part of the book, God selects Abram, takes him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and brings him to the promised land and promises to him that he's going to make a great nation of him, which will bring blessing to the entire world. And that sounds a very grand promise, which indeed it is. But as the years went by, it became ever more difficult to see how that could happen. Because what happens is Abram conveys that promise to his son Isaac. Isaac conveys it to Jacob. So it's single son transmission, father to son, etc. But now we break new ground because Jacob is going to transmit his vision to all of his sons. And so we get the beginnings of a nation And that begins to answer one of the questions. How is this message going to get out to the world? If you simply go father, son, father, son, father, son, it will never get out. You've got to expand it. And so it's expanded to a nation. The second thing that is new in this part of Genesis is the huge question of pain and suffering. Up until now, we've read some about suffering, in Abram's family and Jacob's, but nothing like what we're going to read about Joseph. Because Joseph, as we know, ends up with unique power running the empire of Egypt. And as he steps onto that world stage, we suddenly realize that here is the beginnings of a world-scale fulfillment of the original promise. Because by conserving the food supply as a minister of agriculture and fisheries, Joseph saves not simply Egypt, but the world around Egypt. The scale is right. But how he reaches that position is one of the most dramatic stories ever told. It's been turned into great literature. It's turned into marvelous art. But to orientate ourselves in it, we need to think of two things. One is the speech that Stephen made in Acts 7, just before he was martyred. 
where he says to the nation, God has sent you all kinds of leaders and saviors, and you've rejected the lot of them, including Joseph. And now you've rejected the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What Stephen is doing there is comparing certain aspects of the experience of Joseph with our Lord himself, and in particular, the issue of rejection and suffering. So we may expect to read the story of Joseph at several different levels. There's a story in itself. But then it becomes a thought model. Just as Joseph came to glorious power through suffering, so did Christ. And it helps us to understand this whole question of rejection, which we now, as a minority in this country, are going to experience more and more. So, a thought model. But then there's what Joseph himself learned. And that we find in a psalm, Psalm 105. This is just to help orient us to help us to see what we would expect to get out of the story. These are the biblical commentaries on the story. So verse 16 of Psalm 105 tells us that he summoned, that is God summoned, a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. It doesn't say very much, but it describes a famine situation. It describes the fact that Joseph was sold as a slave and he was hurt, and he was chained, his neck put on a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. I would like to suggest that, and it's the way we're going to look at this story, it's a testing of a man who trusted God in the face of very little evidence. And that is very unusual. Joseph, for the early part of his life, must have been incredibly lonely. First of all, he's brought up in a dysfunctional family where the brothers hate him. He's then sold as a slave into an alien culture, alien in every way, in its language in its laws, in its ways of doing things, in its gods above all. Utterly lonely. And yet the amazing thing is that he held on to his dreams. 
How am I doing with holding on to my dreams of long ago? Dreams, of course, connected with what God was doing in my life. And Joseph, who's schooled in loneliness, in obscurity, in privation, really, ends up being one of the most powerful witnesses for God in all of history. His moment came. And that's enormously encouraging. The moment that came lasted about 30 seconds when Pharaoh called him in. And his entire life had been geared to that single trigger that catapulted him from an Egyptian prison onto the world stage. This is an immensely encouraging story. And as we look at it, I hope you will receive a lot of encouragement, especially if you're feeling lonely, especially if you're feeling the pressure of hatred maybe, especially if your family relationships are not what you'd like them to be, as Joseph's were not right from the very beginning, that God can work in this kind of situation and he can prove to us that his word is true and bring us to a place where we can witness in an alien culture as is the title of our talks. Every time I read this story, I'm just amazed that Joseph learns to trust a God that's largely silent. You know, we have scripture. We have hundreds of thousands of words from God. What did he have? Well, the word God is not mentioned very much. He had dreams, but were not told initially that they were from God, although it's clear from what subsequently happened that that's what he believed. Now, you know what sometimes happens to us? Because I'm very old, as you see, it's happened to me many times. You go to a conference and you start talking to someone and they're bubbling over with marvelous experiences of God, the like of which you'd never dreamed of, never heard of, never could imagine. And the more you hear these stories, the smaller and smaller you feel, well, that's not happening to me. Do you ever have that experience? And you can even feel envious. I wish I had more of this kind of thing in my life. Well, Joseph didn't. He had more of the rough stuff, not more of God speaking to him. You see, the issue is very simple. It's relatively easy to trust God if things are going well, if there are all kinds of indicators in our lives that God is with us. But once things go in the opposite direction, then the word of the God will test us. And it tests us in many different ways because God has made promises to us. Will they turn out to be real? He's promised to guide us in life. He's promised to teach us the depths of his forgiveness. Will they help us overcome our guilt and the mess we sometimes as Christians make of our lives and sadly of other people's lives? And Joseph is a story 
that encourages us that we may be in our present position, sitting here this morning, hanging on to God in the absence of the dramatic. And this is a story to help us to keep hanging on. Joseph had some dramatic incidents in his life, but he had to wait a very long time for them. The word of the Lord tested him in a sense that when engineers are testing materials for use in something like the space shuttle, they subject them in the laboratory to absolute extremes that the scientists hope that they will never experience. And that's what we see in Joseph. He's put under severe strain in every possible direction. God is testing him to see what he can bear. And he learns through it to be qualified to have power and to use power. They're not quite the same things. That is to use it properly. So here's a man who suffers all kinds of rejection and suddenly finds himself with enormous power. And he has to decide how he is going to use it, as every leader does, of course. And the way in which he uses it to bring his brothers to repentance and reconciliation is again the heart of this drama. So that's a very brief introduction. So let's look at one or two things out of what we've just read. Joseph was only 17, so he's a teenager. And the first thing we know is that we're in a very complicated family. One husband, four wives, 13 children. I hope none of you are suffering that particular. (laughs) But it spells problems, doesn't it? I know you laugh, but you know, one husband, one wife, and three or four children can be equally difficult, ladies and gentlemen, can't it? But this was a very difficult situation. Wives, concubines, all this kind of thing. Messy, full of strained relationships, dysfunctional, unfair, and sometimes even murderously violent. Do you know, I'm so glad scripture isn't just a book of philosophy. Answering our intellectual questions, although they're very important, and this book does a lot of that. But it goes into the mess of our lives. And shows us how God works, not by giving us theory, but by giving us actual story in practice. And so we're taken instantly into what is obviously a problematic situation. And the first problem we read is that he brought a bad report of them to their father. Now he's 17. The others are older. So what is he? A little sneak, as we used to call folks at school who did that kind of thing. Is that true? Well, if you read some of the Jewish commentaries, boy, do they come down to Joseph at this stage of his life. That he was simply a teenage, um, snotty little boy telling as many stories as he could to his fathers, uh, his brothers. Do you remember when you were young? I know for some of you it's a very long time. But did you ever have a brother or sister said to you, I'll tell on you? You never had that experience, I suppose. It doesn't happen in Wales, does it? No, no, no. I'll tell on you. 
Uh, but it happens with adults too, doesn't it? Now, how can we analyze this? Is the question we have to decide whether Joseph was a snake or there was something more to it? Well, perhaps we don't have to answer the question. Because what we can judge is what the reports did. They caused hatred. Suppose they were entirely true and accurate. They might have been. They caused hatred. Now, why do I suggest that as a possibility? Because I'm thinking of that thought model of Joseph being, in a sense, like our Lord. And when our Lord started to speak, do you remember one day his brothers said to him, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and show yourself to the world if you do these things? And he said, my time is not ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because part of his message was about the moral evil inside human personality. Now, was that telling tales, what our Lord did? And you evangelists, well, all of us, actually, when we're communicating the gospel, inevitably it's going to come up that our message has a moral dimension, that people are to repent and believe. Now, how do you avoid being accused of being a sort of telltale when you raise those questions? Well, we need to be very careful. We don't go around gossiping and saying, I know you. And know what you did. You'll never get anywhere that way. But you can see there are two sides to this. There comes a point where, yes, you have to tell the truth. But now, in Joseph's case, his father was really very foolish indeed. First of all, to entrust this to the youngest, not quite the youngest. Benjamin was around, but Joseph was uh, the youngest, so to speak, the eldest son of his favorite wife. Jacob had done something else, and we read about it here. It said he loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. That exacerbated the whole situation. But before we look at that, just let's think about it. We see that the reports he told Damaged relationships. They do, you know. It's very interesting when scripture talks later about loving your neighbor as yourself. One of the prime definitions of it is don't gossip. Now, this is hard, isn't it? Have we talked about anybody else in the last week? Who wasn't present? Have we? Did we say 100% of the truth? 80%? 50%? 10% or 0%? You see, although we can't tell exactly what Joseph's position was here, Scripture is full of the damage caused to relationships in families and in churches and in Christian ministries by loose talk and fake news it's a problem isn't it you know that what happens sometimes now let me tell you this story but please don't tell anybody else because I promise not to tell anybody else what I mean we laugh because we know this is our human attitude 
But let me say there's a big lesson to learn here. In a society where there's immense pressure, morally, from the internet, for example, you're only two clicks from disaster. That's frightening, isn't it? When there's immense pressure because of the acceptability of all kinds of variability in the nature of relationships, when children are being taught all kinds of things that are anti-scriptural, where there don't seem to be any moral norms within our society at any level. And here we are in this ocean of rejection and denial. And we have to maintain a Christian witness. It isn't easy. I can see that it was far easier for me as a child in Northern Ireland than it is for my children and even more my grandchildren today. How are we going to help them? Because there are plenty of parents here today. It's so important. I heard of a child this morning, age seven, primary school. And the question of her Christian background came up and a little friend at school said, that's all nonsense. And now five years later, she'll have nothing to do with the faith because of that one statement. So what are we going to do, folks? That's why I'm glad you're having these seminars today because we need to get down to talking about these things that are so easily shelved. And one of the first of them is gossip, what we say about other people. Some of you are old enough to have seen churches wrecked by it and families squabbling, squabbling even after the death of the parents over legacies and all kinds of stuff. It's all there and it's all in scripture, which gives me some hope that God knows about it. So perhaps he can help us with it. So gossip is dangerous. And if you believe in that second big commandment, love your neighbors yourself, then you'll keep your mouth shut. And you know, my experience tells me there are so many young people around that wish they knew a Christian adult that was approachable and could keep their mouth shut. We are so loving of the juicy bit of information that in the end may destroy somebody. I think we need to take this very seriously. We can destroy people. And go back to church and worship the Lord and break bread and all this kind of stuff. And our words are destroying people. We need to take it seriously. But the second thing, of course, is that Jacob was a very foolish father. In more ways than one. He favoritized his son. He loved him more than he did his other sons. Not only did he do that in his heart, he expressed it publicly by giving him a very expensive present. I wonder, can we relate to that? Do you know when children are small about this size? They're all the same. They're messy. They make all kinds of uh, trouble and they eat their food and all a mess and all that kind of thing. And it's okay. They're cuddly when they're washed and cleaned and sleep. But they grow older. And they grow geometrically larger. 
And they begin to fill a bigger space. And suddenly, I don't know how it happens, you find yourself in a house with two or three more adults. And they're not all the same. One of them is so easy to deal with. Always washes the dishes, always is helpful. Another one is always flouncing out and saying that she's not coming in till late and all this. Oh, I wish you were like your brother. Uh, uh, uh. Do you discriminate between your kids? Think about it. I'm not going to ask you publicly, do you? But once they begin to differentiate, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because some are like you. And you know, I find it much easier to like people who are like myself than people who are always... And Jacob showed it. Now, he should have known. Why should he have known? Because he was involved in the very same thing at the similar age. Do you remember what happened to him? His father loved Esau. And his mother loved darling little Jacob. And so when it came to the blessing, the mother, realizing that there was going to be a catastrophe, killed a goat, dressed it like venison. And then Jacob, who was quite smooth in his skin, was dressed in the skin of a goat. And then he went to his father, and his poor old father was so blind, he couldn't tell the difference between his son and a goat. Which is a bit of a sad story, really. But favoritism was destroying the family. And you say, oh, but it doesn't matter. Because God in his providence overruled it and Jacob got the blessing, even though he stole it. Jacob got the blessing and all was well in the end. Oh, no, no, no. We need to separate two things in scripture. There's God's promise that eventually Jacob would hold that. and his, But then we make a false assumption. And that is that God approved of his method, and God didn't approve of his method, and he had to face it. Now, there's a little subtle thing that happens sometimes with those of us who are convinced Christians. We've been saved by the grace of God, and it's magnificent. We've been forgiven. But then that creeps into our heads that perhaps the way we behave doesn't quite matter so much. And God will forgive us. Of course he will. I mean, that's just a little, you know. And we think we can get away with it because we've misunderstood the gospel. By grace you're saved, not of works, but you're saved for good works. That God has ordained that we should walk in them. That was Jacob, you see. He was given the promises and he believed that God was with him. And he ended up thinking, it's pretty obvious from his behavior, that it didn't really matter. It does matter. It matters for us and it matters for the world that watches us. Because people can't see what we believe, but they can see how we behave. And favoritism is a major problem. It starts within families. It's very difficult to eradicate, but it can lead to traumas that last the whole of life. (coughs) Is that you, love? And the other child says, no, it's only me. That's tragic, isn't it? 
how can we be fair? And you parents that are nearing the end of the journey, as I am, be careful what you do, preparing for your decease. None of us are perfect, but years of fighting and squabbling might be avoidable if we took good advice and put our affairs in order in some sensible way. There are huge areas of life that are covered by this. Favoritism in the church? Wow. Well, of course, I can't comment on your churches, nor would I. And if they were perfect, I shouldn't join them because I'd soon spoil them. But we're grown up enough to know that favoritism at that level is a very subtle thing. Favoritism in terms of gifting, in terms of financial power, in terms of public status and all this kind of thing. And Jacob was sowing disaster by giving the one son this very expensive cloak, this coat of many colors, and provoking them absolutely to, well, to murder or as near as possible. So he brought a bad report. He was favoritized. And that was a very unwise thing. Now, how can we combat that? Well, you'll notice in Scripture that one of the things that's said a number of times about God is that he's impartial. He judges according to everybody's works. And when it comes to the designation or recognition or appointment of leaders in the church, Paul tells Timothy that he's not to show favoritism. Do you remember that? Do you know how he deals with it? Let me put it into colloquial English. He says, Timothy, remember who's watching. I charge you in the sight of God and the elect angels that you do nothing through partiality. Wow. Remember that the next time you are encouraging someone to take on some sort of public ministry. Remember who's watching your decision. God and the elect angels. Would you be happy if God and the elect angels walked into your conference room where you're making the decision? And God and the elect angels are very interested in watching just how biased we are. Wow. It sobers you up, doesn't it? And you can immediately think of imperfections. We need to be so careful in this area, but we need to be encouraged by the fact that God is actually interested in it. Peter puts it to all of us, not just leaders. Be holy because I am holy, he says in 1 Peter 1.17. Since you call on a father who judges each work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear because you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. But... In the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. I think this is very powerful. You see, 
Suppose I'm an impecunious student and I live a long way from the university and my great aunt takes mercy on me and gives me an old clapped out beetle. It's 45 years old but still ticking. And I run it for a week and then there are problems. And I come back to her and I say, do you know this is a wretched car you've given me? It's absolutely hopeless. Haven't you got anything better? Well, I'm not likely to do that because she's likely to say, if I said that, just a moment. You didn't pay for it. It didn't cost you anything. I gave it to you. I'm sorry if it's run out, but then we all knew its days were limited. That's one thing. But if you've gone down to the dealership and bought your Porsche for £100,000 and take it home, and after three days the gearbox strips and the cogs fall out in the road... I think you'd have the right to complain. Yes? Why? Because it was so expensive. Do you think that God has any right to complain about me? What is the expense he's paid on me? Redeemed? Not with corruptible things such as silver and gold. And we can get very cross if we waste the silver and gold. But with the blood of Christ. God has paid so much for you and me to get us, so to speak. To redeem us. Peter's saying, right, God has the right to expect something from you. I find that a very sobering thought. Because it's truth bearing in often on sentiment and feelings. God has the right to expect something. And the area of this is, please be impartial. He thinks it's important to bring the issue of partiality to the foot of the cross of Christ. That's how serious he regards it. Because it's one of the most damaging currents in our society. How are we going to maintain Witness in an alien, culturally distant society if we are showing partiality. Well, we can remember. That's one of the important functions of the Lord's Supper. It commands us to face that. This is the expense that the Lord has paid. So we are to be impartial. But then to make the situation worse, dysfunctional family, bringing a bad report, favoritism, then Joseph dreams. That does not appear to have been his fault. But then, of course, the pundits pile in on Joseph. Poor old Joseph, he gets a rough time here. Why did he tell the brothers about the dreams? Why didn't he keep it to himself? Was he so full of pride that he was burst? Well, listen, he was only 17. He was a teenager and something very strange happened to him. And this is an ancient oriental culture. And dreams, of course, were regarded as extremely important because he would have known from his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather, he would have known that God sometimes spoke in this way. It wasn't in that sense new. And we must remember that 
Joseph had talked to some of his forebears. He'd known them. There's a huge long background that I haven't even mentioned this morning. It's in the book, but I can't take time to go into it. The amount of stuff that Joseph knew. And he knew they portended, and perhaps quite innocently, he went, he said, you know, I had a dream last night and so on. So, But of course, you could see the content of the dream. Oh, but the years passed by and you could just hear the very same thing in the house of Jesus of Nazareth. How can you be special? You're just a carpenter's son. Will this man reign over us? Yes, he will. But they weren't to learn that for a long time. But this issue, you see, in that home, they couldn't... Well, they just got absolutely mad when they heard it. And, of course, what happened was that Jacob now takes the next silly step. Because the brothers are quite a long way from home, pastoring flock near Shechem. And I will send you to them. What? Send a 17, 18-year-old perhaps now across Well, maybe he had a servant. He seems to have at least one. And Jacob knew that the brothers hated him. He couldn't have missed that unless he was completely uh, spaced out. He knew. And so off Joseph goes. He doesn't find them at first. And then he finds them and they see him coming at a distance. And they conspired against him to kill him. Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him. And now we begin to get insight into other members of the family. And this is very important. Because it's not just the story of Jacob. It's Jacob and his sons. Joseph, yes, now comes Reuben. Let us not take his life, he says to the brothers. Shed no blood, cast him into this pit in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. But he didn't. Reuben is one of these unstable people, and you can see it from various details in his character. He says, yes, I'll do that. You can rely on me, count on me, I'll get you out. And he doesn't. Have you ever been like that? The church is relying on you to do something. You said you've done it, but you don't bother. We need to be responsible people. And poor old Reuben, we begin to get an insight into his character. But Joseph comes to the brothers. They take his robe off, which offended them so much, and they took him and cast him into a pit, which was empty, and they sat down to eat. Their teenage younger brother... Screaming to get out. We know he screamed to get out. Because when they got down to Egypt, Joseph overheard them saying, we heard him screaming and we didn't do anything. Talk about callousness. Now, who are these people? Can God do anything with folks like that? Their young brother screaming, stripped of his robe, And he wants to get out. And what are they doing? He's famished with hunger. And they unpack their lunches up at the top of this cistern, which was bottleneck shaped underneath the ground to keep water cool or whatever was put in it. And they set up at the top and openly and visibly they ate their food while he was screaming to be let out. 
That's a very low point, isn't it? Of callousness and from their vantage point, they saw a caravan coming full of Ishmaelites going down to Egypt. And now Judah comes. And he says, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. <coughs> wow. Well, at least it's a start. But it's a very low-level start. He's our brother, so let's sell him. You can scarcely imagine that. But they sold him. And then what they did was they took his robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they brought it to their father. We found this, they said. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. It is. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt toward the pieces. And Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth in his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And they kept their mouths shut for years. What do you make of it? Have you been keeping your mouth shut for years about something that you ought to have sorted out? But notice the irony of this. Do you remember I told a story? Jacob deceived his father using the skin of a goat. Now he gets deceived using the blood of a goat. They didn't have DNA testing in those days. So all Jacob saw was this coat covered in blood, and he made the false deduction. And that kind of thing happens a lot in this story. Notice the word identify. Is this your son's robe or not? That is going to become a key phrase in the story that follows. Now, Joseph had dreamed. We believe God was behind the dream. The dreams got him into trouble. The dreams nearly got him killed. The dreams led to Jacob thinking his son was dead and God never sent a dream to Jacob in all the years to tell him his son was alive. He thought about that. The silence of God. The dreams had precipitated the whole thing. And yet, as you think of his whole story, at any time, God could have appeared in a dream and said, Jacob, it's okay, your son's alive in Egypt. Or he could have appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, your son, your, your father's alive, and so's your brother. He never did it. Do you think I know why? Not really. But it's important to realize just what's going on here. How do you wrestle with this kind of thing? Now, what happens next? I think I'm going to leave questions until the second section. The second session, if you don't mind, I was given that option. What we're told next is a big chapter that I'm not going to say anything about, except it says it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers, and he got into a catastrophic moral mess. So look at the family. Joseph's gone. 
Now Judah's gone. This is a family that's disintegrating. It's dysfunctional to start with. Now it is disintegrating. And we arrive in chapter 39 where Joseph is sold to the army officer, very senior person, obviously, um, in Egypt. His name is Potiphar, which is a very good Egyptian name. I cannot imagine what it must be like to stand in an alien culture listening to a foreign language, totally undefended when people call out prices and auction you. But you know that's happening to people as we sit here in our modern world. People are being sold as slaves. There are slaves in the UK. People being held under the most horrific conditions. Slavery in the ancient world wasn't always as bad as slavery in the modern world. And clearly the man that bought him, he... Uh, took him into a, a very huge house and he very rapidly proved that he was unique. And we read this, the Lord was with Joseph. That doesn't spell that out in terms of visions or dreams or anything like that. We're just told that we are to read the next bit, understanding that the Lord was with him. What did that mean? Well, it mean, meant that he became a brilliant administrator in the house of Potiphar. And eventually Potiphar, seeing the genius he had and being probably intrinsically quite lazy, like many officials, decided he could trust the running of the palace to this young man, which he did very successfully. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he did. And it was absolutely marvelous. And because of Joseph, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Perhaps he was a bit like the French. They don't like English cooking, for example. But anyway, you you can get the idea. It's a touch of authenticity, though, because we know from separate documents that the Egyptians were very fussy about who cooked their food. So here's a, just a little innocent touch that this is actual stuff. But you see, Joseph had another, I nearly said ability. It wasn't so much an ability, but he was a very handsome young man. And there was a woman in the house, the wife of Potiphar. Now, we don't know much about her. We don't know whether this story is simply a story of lust or she was so bored and lonely that she fell in love with this young man or whatever. We just don't know. But what we do know is he came under enormous sexual pressure. Now, many people in our contemporary world would simply have said, Joseph, do what you want. Have your fun. He was lonely. He was a normal young man. But Joseph's response to this temptation is absolutely spectacular because he says to her, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has to my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, 
nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How can then I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she tried to ambush him, and he ran out, as we know, leaving his cloak behind. This is well, it gives us colossal insight because once you begin to think of where this is, this is Genesis. And the first temptation to humanity, do you remember that one? Eve offered the forbidden fruit to Adam. It was very attractive, so was she. To refuse that fruit, which he didn't, would have meant refusing her. You need to be very careful when you refuse something your wife gives to you, you know. And perhaps some of you have learned to your bitter experience that it's not always a wise thing to do. But here, Adam and Eve were in a paradise garden. Got everything except one thing. The fruit was forbidden. Have you realized that the story of Joseph repeats this? It's not a beautiful garden, it's a beautiful palace. And there's a woman and a man. And there's one forbidden thing, that is her. It's a rerun of the Garden of Eden. But this time, how can I sin against God? In days gone by, I would have started talking at this point about situational ethics, but you'll all know what it is. Where our moral norms are determined simply by our situation. But not for Joseph. It was who saw him was important. And what kept him steady in refusing this huge moral pressure. And by the way, it wasn't just a moral pressure. Because the bit of ancient Egyptology I have read tells me pretty clearly that if he had given in, he could have taken over Potiphar's position. He was to gain a higher one, but he didn't know that at the time. So he decides not to give in, even though his feelings, his natural desires were all in one direction. It's a huge challenge, isn't it? And how the internet has pushed its way into the area of human feelings and visual responses, making it 10,000 times more difficult for people to take the stand that Joseph did here. Do you know, I sit here with a Bible. We know 10,000 times more than Joseph did about God at that stage. And yet he stood firm. Fantastic, isn't it? There's something about the attitude of this man that utterly commands respect. He did get a wife later. God gave him one. And if we resist in our turn, God understands what we need. To go back to where we were, we ended up with Joseph. He is appointed to run the palace of Potiphar. And the amazing thing is, 
He gets on with the job in spite of the utter unfairness he's experienced up to this point. And then in the middle of it all, the wife of Potiphar attempts to seduce him. Now, this story in this book tells you that Joseph succeeded in escaping the temptation. Not every believer does. And if one were to be fair to the topic, one would have to say, but look, some fail, either in their minds or actually physically. What about them? Well, not here, but elsewhere the Bible talks about them. The most famous case is King David. And you know about King David. But in order to talk in a balanced fashion about this topic, that is this precise topic of temptation, one would have now to spend an enormous amount of time in dealing with God's forgiveness, the nature of repentance, and all this kind of thing. I'm just mentioning that because it's important. I'm not going to go into it in detail because just a little bit further along in this story, we're going to deal with repentance, but in a different area of life, though the principles are the same. The result was, of course, that Joseph, master, his boss, came home and listened to his wife, and she played the race card, you'll notice, and he had no redress, and he was thrown into the prison. So now he has reached a low point, a very low point, and as he comes into the prison, we are told once more, and I read in verse 21 of 39, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now we're talking about his, well it wasn't employment because he wasn't being paid for it. But it's his attitude to the ordinary business of life, work. Now that's a huge topic that we talk far too little about as Christians because we spend much more of our time at work usually than we do in a church building. And what is so impressive with Joseph is he doesn't appear to let Life's unfairness. Stop him doing a good job. Firstly, in Egypt, in Pharaoh's palace, he does it so brilliantly. He's running the place. He's a gifted administrator. And the Lord is interested in his administration as he is in yours. He's interested in the man's work life. And in his workplace, he faces temptation, as most of us do. Joseph wasn't tempted uh, while he was sitting in an armchair drinking coffee. But he was in the workplace running this, and suddenly in the workplace there was a beautiful young woman, as many a businessman has found, in his office while his wife is getting older at home. And we all know what happens. Now this is hugely important. I mentioned Genesis 3. The first temptation occurred in the workplace. 
the Garden of Eden. They were working. That was their workplace. And that's where it mostly happens. Now, this is a huge topic, the topic of work. So here's a very compressed comment on this. Our Lord talks about it. And he talks about it in a context that's familiar to us, but it's not familiar to us. We've even made a song out of it. And most of us work. Why do we work? Well, you might want to say I have a wife and ten children, so I've got to work. So don't talk to me about the need to work. Well, we know what we're saying, but if you went out in the street in Bridge End and said to people, why do you work? Well, I need a home, I need food, and I need clothing. Really? Is that why you work? Well, think twice before you answer. Because our Lord talked about food, clothing, and housing. Do you remember that? Sermon on the Mount? And then he made a pretty provocative statement. After all these things, the pagans seek. Oh, that's their motive. Well, of course it is. You can test it for yourself. But what about our motive? And then the Lord drops the bomb. But you... Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What does he mean? Hasn't he ordained work? Yes, he has, as Paul says. If any person will not work, neither let him eat. He doesn't say if anyone doesn't. It's almost as if he foresaw uh, unemployment. If anyone will not work, neither let them eat. God has ordained. That the norm for us all is to feed ourselves by working. But the issue is the underlying motivation. Let me put it this way. Food, clothing and so on are the byproducts of work. They're not its goal. That our Lord is saying explicitly. The goal of work is seeking the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Sending a verse to your uh, managing director every morning to make sure they understand scripture. No, it doesn't mean that. Seeking God's kingdom, let me put it into contemporary English, seeking his rule. Work is given to us to be an experience of God's government. That changes things massively, you know. You go to work on Monday morning, and what's it for? Well, you say for food and so on. No, 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 for, for you as a believer. God is wanting to teach us about his rule in what area. Seek God's kingdom and what? His righteousness. There isn't any job in the world that doesn't raise the question of morality usually on day one. Work consists, especially as you move up, in moral decisions. Is God interested in them, vastly interested in them? Because they are the things that create your character. And you know, this is a huge challenge, but it's a vast encouragement. It means God is interested in your work, whatever it is, even in administering unfairly imprisoned in a prison. And Joseph got it. Because he learned about righteousness at his work. And when the test came... With the woman at work, he passed it. We don't all pass it, do we? How many temptations there lie in work, both morally, financially, every other direction. 
But what an exciting thing it is that when you go to your teaching or your nursing or even working down a mine, as so many did years back in this country, to have that sense that God is interested in this. He's not just interested in what I do when I go to church or when I get involved in preaching. He's interested in my work life because he wants it to be an experience of his government. You can see how it was for Joseph. Somehow he had this sense, even though he didn't have a Bible, to hang in there believing that the Lord was with him in his work. I want that to be an encouragement to you. Because some people feel, you know, I'm not a speaker. How we were ever educated to think that the only thing to do in public was speak in the Christian world, that's a tragedy, folks. Because it meant that a whole lot of people thought they could speak when they weren't gifted to do it. It secondly meant that those who were gifted didn't get the real opportunity to do it, and it skewed the whole of the Christian community. If you're working... And it may not be paid. You might be working caring for an elderly relative with dementia, but it's still work. You might be dealing with very difficult children who may have genetic defects and all that. It's work, and God recognizes it as such. You may be working as a missionary. It's work, 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 whether it's paid or not. And what's it for? To learn about God's government. So that's the context here. And when the temptation hit Joseph at his work, he resisted it and he came through positively. So now he's in a prison. Not running a palace, but a prison. And everybody is put in his charge, including the prominent prisoners, and two of them soon arrive. The famous story of the cupbearer and the chief baker. And Joseph was appointed to be with them. They were the most important prisoners because they were Pharaoh's prisoners. And they have a dream. And uh, they have different dreams. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. How did he notice? Would you have? Do you notice what's happening to other people when you're in trouble? Are you being treated unfairly? No, you don't. Nor do I. We notice ourselves, of course. He noticed that these guys were troubled. I tell you, that's spectacular. What's wrong with you guys? We've had a dream. Ha! You've had a dream. Listen, I had dreams years ago myself. They never came to anything. Forget them. They're just the prison food. That's all they are. Can you, can't you see Joseph saying that? But he didn't. Which means what? It means he still believed his own dreams. Wow. In spite of the unfairness, the hatred, the murderous attitude of his brothers, all the viciously wrong experiences, he still believed what he understood God had said to him. Do you? Now ask yourselves that seriously. Don't just say, oh, well, I'm a Christian and I I attend this fellowship and so on. Do you really believe what God said to you years ago? Do you still believe it? 
cannot be seen in the way you behave? Or are we just like everybody else? Now, I know I'm speaking to you, but I'm very aware of speaking to myself. I ask myself these questions all the time because I want this stuff to be real. And it's so easy to play at religion. And the further it gets away from real hands-on practice, the more dogmatic some of us become inversely proportional to the amount of evidence we have for the things that we're supposed to believe. It's so important to get real at this point. And Joseph noticed these men. What's wrong with you men? So they told him his dream. And there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said interpretations belong to God. So now he's using the word God. He's hanging on to God. Tell them to me. So they did. And you know, Joseph interpreted them. And one of them was to be restored. uh, The cupbearer. And all he said to him was, remember me when it's well with you. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And so what he'd predicted happened. So now Joseph knew that his interpretation was correct. So he knew that this had not left him. He did dreams of his own come to nothing so far. These two had dreams and Joseph had got it exactly right. What do you think that did for his understanding of where he was? Well, I would have thought it would fill him with hope. And as the one went to execution, the other went back to the palace, Joseph would wait. Well, tonight surely somebody will come. They didn't. A week goes by and nobody comes. A month goes by and nobody comes. A year goes by and nobody comes. Two years go by. And Pharaoh dreams. Two years delay. Who caused the delay? Well, it's obvious who caused the delay. God did. Wow. Do you still believe your dreams, Joseph? Two years. Now, think about it carefully. Suppose... The chief butler had remembered Joseph during those two years. What would have happened? Well, it's easy to imagine what would have happened. Pharaoh would have issued a pardon. Joseph would have gone back to life uh, of some kind, but nothing much. But you see, the timing is vitally important because Pharaoh dreamed. And the dream is terrifying. It's a double dream, obviously, to do with starvation. And we know it's to do with a famine. And it's double to emphasize it. And Pharaoh is utterly terrified for many reasons. Because Pharaoh was the protector of the Nile and was regarded as a god. The Nile was the great river. And if you read anything about Egyptology, it's fascinating. The Nile was the giver of life because the country was utterly dependent on the grain that was produced from the inundation of the Nile that happened every year. And Pharaoh 
was the one who was supposed to have the influence to make sure that happened. So seeing lean cattle and very poor grains of corn in a dream was absolutely terrifying because it spelt his own doom, really. So he couldn't interpret it. Now, the cupbearer, obviously, he's around the place. He's the man, by the way, that makes sure that Pharaoh isn't going to be poisoned by the next glass of wine. That's why it was very important. And he says, oh, I remember. I was in prison your Majesty, you were a bit upset with me. You put me in prison. And I met a man there. Bring him here. Bring him here. So, it says this. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there's no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. (laughs) Joseph answered Pharaoh. Gosh, I'd love to have been there to hear this. It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That's the pinnacle of witness, you know, to stand in front of a world power and say, no, it's not in me. I'm I'm not the expert. God is going to speak to you and give you an answer. And there he stands in front of the most powerful man in the world at the time. And Pharaoh tells his dream. And Joseph responds, the dreams of Pharaoh won. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And so he tells him, and he keeps speaking. He interprets the dream, but he doesn't stop speaking. It would be best to dramatize this because it's very dramatic. And he goes on to say that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select. Now he's telling Pharaoh what to do. You don't tell Pharaohs what to do, you know. And he's only a youth, really, possibly in his 30s at this stage. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land during the seven years and let them do this and let them do that. Now he's acting on all the years of experience of administration and dealing with scarce resources. And he tells Pharaoh exactly what to do. And Pharaoh recognizes that in front of him, he is a genius of an economist. And it pleased Pharaoh. And he said, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh says, since God has shown you this, now we're all talk about God. When there was none before. And Joseph has suffered his apprenticeship. And he's learned the lessons, but he's learned a huge number of things about the way the world works. So that he's not only witnessing to Pharaoh about the existence of God, he's now moving in as a savior of the economics of the country. It's not bad, is it? What an unusual pathway to power. Now, I'm not an economist. And I'm not going to speak to you on what 
I think, about his methodology of taxation. I'm just glad that it's not practiced in the UK. It's bad enough here. But if you look at his, where over the years they collected all this kind of stuff. But the scene changes, and we move to the fact that Jacob learned. We haven't heard from Jacob for ages. When he learned that there was grain for sale, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go and buy grain. So ten of the brothers were chosen. Joseph's immediate brother, Benjamin, was held back because Jacob, it says, feared that harm might come to him. So the sons of Israel came to buy, and there was Joseph, hands-on administrator, and he was standing there, and suddenly these ten people, he began to recognize who they were. And as they came to the front of the crowd, they bow. Wow. What's going to happen next? It's coming true. But there are only ten bowing. One was left at home. And he speaks roughly to them, treats them as strangers. Where do you come from? From Canaan. He recognized them. They didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams and he said, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Oh no, we are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said, no, it's the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. And in that split second, Joseph learns two things. His dad's still alive, and so is his brother. He's standing there. for Now what do you do? He hadn't heard from them for years. He didn't know whether they were dead or alive. And he's standing with the power of life and death for these men in his hands. What would you have done? What do you do with this kind of power when you've got it? Well, we can read what happened. So he said, you shall be tested because immediately now he knows what to do. You won't go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there's truth in you. This is what it's all about. The word of the Lord tested him. And now he's going to test the brother's claim to be honest men, to see if the truth is in them. Do you know, Life for us is a test to see if there's truth in us. The question of truth-telling is hugely important. We live in an age where many people claim not to believe in truth, except when it comes to what's in their bank balance. I'll leave you to think about that. There are no postmodern bank managers, I can assure you, who will tell you that if you ask for a £500,000 loan and say, but you've only got 2000 in the bank, oh, that's your truth. You're not getting very far with that, you know. But truth 
is a rare commodity in our world. And one of the ways in which we witness is by being truthful and also, if we're able to do it, to talk to people about the nature of truth and how it's utterly essential to the preservation of our society. Truth. I'm going to see if there's any truth in you. So he was going to keep the lot of them and then he weakens it and he says, look, let one of your brothers stay here and send the rest home and carry grain and bring your younger brother down. So just let's think about it. Jacob has lost Joseph. Uh, Judah had disappeared for a while. Now um, he takes, uh, who is it? He takes Simeon. And just before he takes them, he overhears them speaking. And they say to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother. Now we have concepts coming up. In truth we are guilty. Truth and guilt. The admission of guilt. Do you find that easy? When did you last say sorry to someone? Do you know, especially we men, you don't mind me speaking to the men, we find it awfully difficult, don't we? In truth, I am guilty, I'm really sorry. Perhaps some of you need to go home and do that before anything else happens today. The admission of guilt. You see, the pressure is coming on. The effect of what Joseph is doing, whatever we think of it, is bringing huge pressure and it's bringing truth out of these chaps. And Reuben um, uh, says, uh, well, they say we are guilty in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. And Reuben said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. And now Joseph knows that one of them tried to save him. He didn't know that before. And so he doesn't take Reuben. He takes Simeon. And off they go home, and you know the story. They find all their money uh, still in their sacks. And they are absolutely trembling and shaken at this. And they come back to Jacob. And Jacob wants to know what has happened. And they give him some account. And Jacob says, no way is Benjamin going to go down. And he's very upset. Listen to how he describes it. Verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to him, You bereaved me of my children. Joseph's no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then Reuben makes the daftest suggestion you could imagine. Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. And that would be another three dead. There's something about Reuben that just... There's something out of joint in his mind. You can see it's so realistic to life, isn't it? It's just crazy suggestion. And of course, Jacob doesn't go in. So the famine gets worse and worse and worse. And Jacob wants more food. And it starts up again. Get his food. And Judah steps up now. Judah's becoming more prominent. And Judah says, well, the man... That's Joseph is the man, the man in Egypt. And the man said to us that you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. And uh, Jacob then says, why were the 
not a bit more economical with the truth, the typical Jacob, but I'll not go into that. And Judah then says, send the boy with me. I will be a pledge of his safety. Now, wait a minute, Judah. You could have saved him, you know. Joseph. Now, this is Joseph's brother. What is your attitude to Joseph's brother going to be? Step back from it. Joseph's out of the picture as far as they know. So now the big issue is going to be, and that's of course what Joseph has engineered, is to test them again. What will their attitude be to Joseph's brother, Benjamin? It is so brilliant, a way of finding out what's in their heart. Well, anyway... I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, um, you shall require him. And if I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And so his father says, if it must be done, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts and almonds. What is this? Joseph runs the whole of Egypt and you send him a bag of mixed nuts. (laughs) It's nuts. (laughs) But, you know, it rings true, doesn't it? The man desperate, what do we do for a chap like this? You see, take him a few nuts. Well, anyway. So off they go. And they stood before Joseph again. And now Joseph sees Benjamin. And he said to the steward of his house, bring the men to my house and slaughter an animal and make ready. And the men were afraid. I'm I'm leaping because we haven't got the time to do it in detail. The men were now afraid and he said it's because of the money. So they go to the steward and he says, no, 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 we got your money. Don't don't worry about it. And um, your God, said the steward, Joseph's steward, has put treasure in your sacks. So he brings Simeon out. And they go to Joseph's house, and he feeds the donkeys. They prepare the present for Joseph's coming at noon. And so they come into him, and they bow down to the ground. And he inquires about their welfare. Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is well. Is he, st- he is still alive. And they bowed their heads again. And then he lifted up his eyes and He saw his brother. Can you just get the emotion of that moment? He saw his brother Benjamin. His mother's son said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you. And now Joseph goes and weeps. This isn't the weeping of a hard despot who's wanting to make these guys suffer the last drop of blood. This is the most carefully balanced use of power you will ever see. The immense power he possessed, and yet the sensitivity to the emotion of the situation. It is spectacular. And of course it's demonstrated in our Lord as he wept at the grave of Lazarus, as he wept over Jerusalem, the one who holds the power of the universe. This is real, isn't it? 
And so they sat down to eat, and to their utter amazement, they were in their order of age around the table. Now, you mathematicians will be able to work out the probability of that happening by chance. And if you can't, shame on you. But anyway, (laughs) it's a bit of intelligent design, this, you see. And it was meant to do exactly that, to puzzle them. There's a mind behind this organization of us sitting around the table. There might be one behind the universe, but that's a topic for another time. All these things are beginning to speak to them. And portions were taken from Joseph's table, and Benjamin got five times what the rest got. Whatever he did with it, I just don't know. It was absolutely huge. And now what happens is that the steward... He, Joseph commands the steward and they fill up the sacks and they put a special cup that Joseph had in Benjamin's sack. So off they go away and then Joseph sends the steward to chase them and to say to them, why have you repaid evil for evil? And they say, but look, we brought the money back. No, 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 you've taken the cup. Yes, well, okay, we'll check and see. We haven't taken the cup, but whoever uh, takes it then is going to be my servant. So, of course, they find the cup in Benjamin's sack. What are they going to do now? Are they going to do what they did years before with Joseph? Let him go. Sell him. You see, they're having to decide about Benjamin, exactly what they had to decide about Joseph years before. And it says, they tore their clothes, all of them, and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. This is now a major step of repentance. They're now standing with Benjamin. They're coming back to the city with him. And of course, when they came to the house, they didn't bow down, they fell down. They fell down in front of him and Joseph said, what have you done? And we are my Lord's servants and all this kind of thing. And we will, no, 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 he said, the man in whose hand the cup was found, he'll be my servant. Go in peace, the rest of you. He's now giving him chance number two to leave Joseph, to leave Benjamin behind. And then they could go. What are they going to do? And Joseph's watching this, of course. And then Judah comes up. And he said, let your servants speak. And he makes this statement. My Lord asked his servants, saying, have you a father, brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, etc. His brother is dead, etc. And you said, bring him down. And we said, the boy cannot leave his father because he, if he should lead, leave his father, his father would die. And then you said, unless your youngest brother comes down, you shall not see my face. And so he goes through the thing. And we told our father when he said, go again, buy food. We cannot go down. 
If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will. But we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, says Judah, that is me. Your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father. If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, please. Please, says Judah. Let your servant remain instead of the boy. Judah, now prepared to take the place of Benjamin when he sold his brother down to Egypt. This is repentance, folks. And Judah takes the place of Benjamin, or wants to, or offers himself to, as a substitute for Benjamin, Judah. Because he cannot bear to see the father without the son. Wow. There's a much greater lion of the tribe of Judah. Isn't there? Taking your place. Take in my place. Take me instead of them. This is the heart of the universe, folks. This is the heart of our Christian message. And here in this far off ancient scene, we see what real repentance is. And of course, when Judah. Joseph saw that. You know exactly what happened next. He couldn't control himself. Make everyone go out so no one stayed. And Joseph said, I'm Joseph. And when they'd come to repentance, he revealed himself to them. And that was the beginning of a profound reconciliation that brought a unity where there had been disunity and enabled them to carry forward the vision of God. You couldn't have invented this story, could you? It is so powerful because when we hear it, we recognize its truth. And its truth comes at so many different converging levels. In its own, as a story, a family story, it's marvelous. But in its implications, in the shadows it throws down through history. Because there's another level altogether. 
This is Israel coming to recognize the son they rejected. Do you think that's ever going to happen? Well, if you don't, you better read Paul, Romans 9, 10, 11. There are big things still to happen. The recognition of the one they pierced. Here it happens, I nearly said in the small, but this isn't small, this is big. But there's a day coming, isn't there? When the Savior will come, and they shall recognize the one they pierced. Living for God in an alien culture. People have got and they live with deep sense of guilt. We've got a message of forgiveness, of peace with God, of new life. And I ask myself so constantly, how can I get this across to people? How can I really get under their skin to explain? But you know, in life I've met so many believers. Not all young people, by far. And they've wrestled all their lives with guilt. Because they've never really been able to forgive themselves because they've never understood what happened at the cross. Not really. And the catharsis and the cleansing and the healing that comes. When even after being a believer for years, we realize what Christ has done can transform your life and mine. Forgiveness is a much bigger thing than ever you knew when you trusted Christ at the age of seven or 14 or 15. It's a huge thing. Can I surprise God was the question. No. Oh, we've surprised ourselves when we hit sin in middle life and we never thought we were capable of it. And now we're up against it again. And we attempt to forgive ourselves, we fail. But we don't come back to realize that we didn't surprise the Lord, that he knew about it. Not only did he know about it, he'd made provision for it. Think about it. The cross happened 20 centuries ago. If it hasn't covered all your sins, including those you commit tomorrow or next week, you've had it, and so have I. It's grasping the dimensions of that forgiveness. And we need to let it sink into our hearts and not simply into our heads. And people will notice it. They'll see it. And I trust that out of our little conference today, there was a time in the past, wasn't there, that many Welsh people think of, when the chapels rang and the bells rang all around these valleys and people were getting converted left, right, and center. And, of course, we long for things like that again. But the trouble with me is I always think it's got to start with somebody else. 
You start it, I'm with you. But if we get real with these things, if we believe this message to the extent that we will go public with it, and I want to ask you, to ask yourselves, when was the last time that you talked about your Christian faith to someone who does not share it? Do you believe it? Do you know, why are you sitting here as Christians? Because somebody bothered to tell you the message. But what are we going to do about that? Are we going to live as a one-way street? It all comes in and nothing goes out. Because the sure way to reach the state that's described in one of these questions of deadness in the church is barrenness in evangelism. A church that is not evangelizing will simply go dead because it means the people don't believe the message they claim to believe. You cannot be a non-evangelizing Christian. Now that doesn't mean you all have to be able to speak. No. But we're all called upon to share, even in little things, especially in little things, that God is real to us. So pray about a friend that you can talk to next week. And you know, you don't need to give them the whole gospel at once. Some of us are so wound up inside, and when we get an opportunity, we start in Genesis 1 and end in Revelation 22. And that's the last time we'll ever speak to that person again. But to drop things about God and our experience and to ask people questions. Do they have anything in life that helps them face the big issues, etc., etc. And you will find, as I have found, that there's nothing revolutionizes your life in witnessing in an alien society There's nothing will revolutionize it like seeing someone else come to faith in Christ. That'll change you. So the Lord be with you. And allow me to pray with you as we stop. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We deserve none of it. And as we sit here and meditate on this profound story, we feel we only scratch at it. It's so big. And yet it takes us into a world of wonderful things. And they're not imaginary or fantasy, they're real. And we pray as we go from this place to witness in this country that you will give us power, that you will give us conviction and commitment to swim against the flow, to stand as your witnesses in this alien society and to bring something of the message of Christ to our fellow men and women. So be with us now and exalt the Lord in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now we've had a few questions and I'm going to spend a couple of minutes talking about them. Very few of them are on Joseph. And you could work out what that means. It may be I've explained enough that you don't have any questions, but it's led me to come to the conclusion that I'm going to say a few, uh, say a few words about these questions. And then we're going to look at the story and we're going to finish at a certain point where it will be, as you say, highly inappropriate to answer questions. So this will be all there is to do with questions. You can... 
think hard about your own questions. You know, the most important work you do on questions, and I do many Q&A sessions around the world, and I always say to people, if your question is a genuine question, that is, it's not simply, let's see what the speaker knows. And you can tell those questions instantly. I'm not going to make any comment on these in that direction to embarrass people. But if you have a real question, a speaker can only answer what's in the top of their head very briefly. And the important work is that you go home and do work on it. And the seriousness of your questions will be seen on whether you do that work or not. We live in an age where people sadly don't take questions seriously. And I would just say, if you have questions in your mind, work at them until you get answers that are satisfactory, especially when you're engaging other people. I'm asked constantly how you can engage. And recently was persuaded to write a little book that's over there. It's called Have No Fear, because many of us are afraid. I don't care who you are. You've got a level of fear and nervousness and sometimes even shame. And where we usually fall down at the engagement level is we don't know how to ask the questions that will lead to a deeper conversation. Questions are hugely important. And so I wrote that little book, which is, I hope, very accessible and very short, to help encourage all of you to get involved the title of this afternoon is Living for God in an Alien Culture. Well, we're in the alien culture. And to build bridges with our friends who do not share our Christian faith, we need to do that. Now, question number one, can I surprise God? Well, now how is one supposed to react to that? I suppose the easy thing to say is you should be much more worried about God surprising you. <laughs> and secondly, you should be worried about you surprising yourself. And thirdly, you should be worried about other people surprising you. Of course, I know it's a question about the way in which the complexities of God's government of this universe mix with our freedom. But the straight answer to the question I believe is shown to us in Scripture by many examples. One of the most powerful, I think, is the case of the Apostle Peter. The Lord told him that he was going to deny him three times. He said, no, I won't. And he got really surprised. But when he got surprised by God, by the Lord, he realized the Lord had known it already. And all these kind of questions about surprising God, that means catching God unawares as if he didn't know it. They turn on the relationship of God to time. And that is difficult. I can prove that to you very easily. We don't even know what time is, let alone what God's relationship to it is. But that it is complex is very obvious by the fact that the Lord stood on earth and said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I have written a little book on the quest of determinism and freedom. It's not so little, it's quite big, and it's over there, but I won't advertise it. Um, 
Related to that, what does it mean when Scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus? Well, mercifully, that's not about Genesis. So I'm going to leave you to read my answer in my book. (laughs) The next question is a comparison of Joseph with Jesus. How do you see the significance of Hebrews 13? Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. I'm not quite sure what it's to do with Joseph because it's a much later place in Israel history. My brief response is that the whole issue in the book of Hebrews is what is to be the Christian attitude ultimately to Judaism. And the early disciples in the Gospels and later on in Acts particularly, there came a necessary split where they had to go outside the whole Jewish system and bear the reproach that that entailed. So the camp that's being referred to is the the camp of Judaism. If you want to know more about that, I can thoroughly recommend a book of my colleague David Gooding, uh, An Unshakable Kingdom on Hebrews. And if you've never read that book... I would encourage you to get it because it's one of the most powerful books on Christian assurance that I have ever come across. Now, here is a thank you for engaging the new atheists and supplying us with the resources to share, stand our ground. And that's what I've devoted a large part of my life to, to give you stuff to use, not just to read yourself and say, that was a nice book. Give the books away when you've finished with them. But use the material. That's the whole point of it. We learn from one another. You know, I used to feel often there was an impression around the place, not only in this country, but in mine and elsewhere, that the ability to speak and teach was the capacity to be original. It isn't, you know. Beware people that claim to be original. There's very few original thinkers. What Paul said to Timothy was, that which you have heard from me, that teach to faithful men who are able to teach others also. That's so important. Timothy had listened to Paul. He'd listened to the basic Christian truth. Now, says Paul, you take that stuff. He didn't say be original. He said, get a hold of that stuff and you teach that stuff. So let me encourage you. It's the sharing of a known body of truth. I didn't write the Bible, you know. I'm simply sharing what's there. It's a known body of truth. The idea that we have to be original, whatever that means, is a red herring. But now there was a question on Jordan Peterson and his like. I don't think there's anybody who's quite his like, actually. Is this the new battleground, a passing phenomenon, or an opportunity? Well, I would say any public intellectual that stands up and ask people to take seriously the first chapters of Genesis while questioning some of the political correctness in our modern culture is someone to be listened to and is really bringing opportunities because he's got a vast following on the internet. Who has not heard of Jordan Peterson here? Who has not heard of him? 
Well, you see, it's amazing. It's even reached South Wales. But, <laughs> but he is a phenomenon, a very bright person. And it's, it's wonderful to watch him wrestling and feeling he needs to speak about the Bible and lots of other things. So these are opportunities. And when we hear such people, sometimes we feel, how can I begin to cope with that? Well, maybe you can't. But we need to engage with the community, ladies and gentlemen. And the newspapers are full of all kinds of ideas and thinking that we can cope with. And we need to know what's going on in order to be able to relate to them. How do we challenge the church to wake up from the insidious, unconscious adherence to the materialistic, capitalist, default state of mind? Well, we start with ourselves. And materialism, naturalism, and these things can creep in. It's part and parcel of our education system. And we need to learn to recognize it where it is and to fight against these things. But when I read the words, the church to wake up, it immediately makes me ask the question, am I really woken up? Is there any evidence in my life that I'm awake? Can people around tell, could they tell, the non-Christian world that I know, that I'm awake or do they think I'm asleep and I sleepwalk into a building once or twice a week and get my spiritual fix? It's really a challenge to us. And it says the church to wake up. That's far too general. Some churches around this world are very much woken up and would put some of us to shame who are not so woken up. I'm always very...